are looking at the twin subjects of wisdom and suffering here in wisdom literature in the Bible, and we're moving through the book of Job to help us. So let's look here at our scripture reading. It's going to kick off here in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, and then 7 through 17. You can follow along, as always, on the screen or within the Bible that you brought with you to a church today. Mortals born of woman are few of days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away like fleeting shadows they do not endure. At least there is hope for a tree. If it's cut down, it will sprout again and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, people will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies... Will they live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. It's God's word to us this morning. You know, nothing is more certain in life than pain and suffering, or as Jesus put it, in this world, you'll have trouble. Therefore, nothing is more needed than resources to help us in the midst of the inevitable trouble and pain and suffering we face, and therefore, once more, you could make the case that there's no book in the Bible more necessary for you, for us, to grasp and apply than the book of Job, the Bible's own wise response to pain and and suffering and and this morning now we come to one of the middle sections of the book where Job is wrestling with his friends and he's he's wrestling with his God and here and next week as we'll see Job Job actually he he wrestles through he breaks through to a couple of high points as we're going to see and and some astounding insight and even again some breakthrough let's Let's ask, what's, what's Job going to discover here? What's he discovered in his journey? Well, in a word, we're going to see Job discovers hope. He discovers hope. How? Oh, it's by seeing that God, in his love for him and for us in the midst of our trouble, makes us three things. He makes us last. He makes us lasting. And he makes us everlasting. If you'll take hold of these, I promise you, promise you, your life will never be the same. Let's begin here, number one, and see how God makes us last. What do I mean? Well, let's just begin by recapping where we are. Job, as we've seen, if you've journeyed with us, Job was a man who had everything and then who lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, his children, even his health, and he's impoverished. Uh, He's in pain, he's inconsolable at points, and in the midst of that, we saw last week Job's friends 
come to him. They came to him and we saw the miserable comfort they offered him. They, they said, in effect, Job, if you're suffering, it's your own fault. And we saw how Job rejected them as a source of comfort. And in their place, now he finds a new one. What is it? Well, let's look at chapter 14, verse 1 here. It says, mortals born of woman are a few days and full of trouble. Now, that may sound to you like, you know, typically Shakespearean in, uh, in, in, in tone, like Macbeth here. And, or it may sound to you like the typical thing Job says in the book. And it is, except until you realize that what's amazing about this statement is actually what Job doesn't say next. And, and because earlier in the book when he would make statements like this, and of course there are many as you read it, Job would always ask why. He's always asking Next, God, why is this happening? Why am I going through it? Why am I in the midst of all of this? Oh, but here in this chapter, there's no why question being asked or something different. As a matter of fact, beginning here in chapter 14 and then moving through the middle chapters of the book, we see Job moving on to ask a different question altogether, which is this. Job stops asking why. And he begins asking, what? What? He begins asking, God, what are you doing in my life? God, what are you up to in the world? And we're going to see actually how he does that in a bit. But I don't want to move past this first point in thought too quickly. And I want to suggest to you that the fact that Job is changing his question in the midst of his suffering is real growth and the real wisdom that the book of Job has to offer us here because it shows us a wise principle which is this, that asking why in the midst of your trouble isn't as wise as asking what? Asking why, again, I think we've got a slide for it here. Asking why isn't as wise as asking what? And let me give you four quick case studies from the Bible, beginning actually with the letter J, to show you why that's true, why it's wiser to ask what? First J is the life of Joseph. Joseph, Joseph. we looked at his life briefly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Joseph was a young man who was sold into slavery. Joseph was betrayed by his family. He was lied about by his employer, right? Wrongfully imprisoned and then ultimately promoted. Why did Joseph suffer? Hold your answer. Second J is Jonah. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet sent by God to preach to a people group that he hated. He refused to go on the grounds that he knew God was so merciful that God would forgive even his enemies uh, if they just showed a smidge of repentance. So God sent a literal storm into Jonah's life. Jonah nearly dies, but he survives and he pins one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, why did Jonah suffer? Hold your answer. Third J is Job, as we're looking at today. As we've seen, he's upright, he's God-fearing, and yet we saw in chapter 1, Satan is allowed to introduce suffering into his life. Job wins through in the end, but at a great cost. Why did he suffer? Hold your answer. Yeah. Fourth J is John, is in John's gospel. And we saw last week in John's gospel, there was a man born blind. And people came to Jesus in that moment and asked him, who caused this man to suffer? Whose fault is it? Was it his or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. And he healed him. Why did that man suffer? Hold your answer. 
Now let's rewind the tape on all these and ask again once more, why did they suffer? Now, hang on, watch this. Joseph suffered to bring healing to his family and nation. Jonah suffered because of his sin and stubbornness. Job suffered not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. And the man born blind in John's gospel suffered because of sin in general, because of the effects of the fall. Now, here's the million dollar question. What do all these people's suffering have in common? And the answer is nothing. And something, as we'll see. And here's what I mean. On the one hand, all these sufferers had nothing in common. That means they suffered for unpredictable reasons, uh, different reasons, a variety of reasons. They had nothing in common, and yet they had something, one thing in common, which was this. You ready? In every case... They were always the last to know why. They were always the last to know why they suffered. It took a little longer to find out in some lives than others. And in Job's case, he never knew. He never found out. But the truth is the same. In each case, each of them was always the last to know why they went through it or they suffered. Now, let me ask you. Do you think it's going to be any different with you? think it's going to be any different with you. Now, we can know, we can see from their stories, in every story, God was always involved. God was always there. God never abandoned any of them, even Jonah, who was pretty crusty. But they couldn't see it. Would it have helped any of them to ask why, 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 over and over and over? No, the truth is, it wouldn't have helped because they couldn't know, and in Job's case, he never knew. So what, in each case of suffering, would have been a more helpful, a better, a wiser question to ask in the midst of suffering? And I mean, what, when you read their stories, do you just root for them to ask, huh? Not why God, but what God? What are you doing in the world through my pain, trouble, and suffering? Now, I'm not saying don't try in the case of uh, of accidents or sicknesses or injustices that you face. I'm not saying don't try to get at the root cause and and fix those, protest those, solve them and do that. Get in there and be a whatever, man, be a a doctor, lawyer, teacher, educator, parent for the glory of God. Man, fix your children's problems, please, for the rest of us, right? But what I am saying is when you go through it, right, when you suffer, you know you do, because I do it, what every human being does initially when they suffer, which is always to ask, why God, right, why, why God, right? And that's what Job does at first, of course he asks why, but here, now, he's showing us as the book progresses that handling suffering wisely is not finding meaning in the why, which is never guaranteed, it's often hidden for us, free, from us for years, if not forever. But wisdom is finding meaning in asking the what. What is God doing when he makes you the last to know why? The answer is this. God, we see in every case, is birthing his glory into the world. Like bringing antibodies to a cut. Not because he loves suffering, but hear this. But because he loves you, the sufferer. 
He loves you, the sufferer. Look at Joseph's life. What did he bring? Glory into a family. Look at Jonah's life. What did he bring? Glory into an oppressive, wicked, corrupt city. Look at Job. He's got a, a glorious name that lives forever. Look at the man born blind. Jesus said it was for God's glory that this was happening. Not because God loves suffering, but because he loves the sufferer. And he can use all the smashed up bits of your life to do that. And the reason beyond questioning you can know this is not just because of these four J's, because of a fifth. The boundary-breaking message of the Bible is that the deepest revelation of God's glory and power and nature and character is found in the weakness, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ on a cross. Do you feel like you're the last to know why? What's going on in your life? You're in good company. Good company. This is always the first step on the road to real hope, like it is with Job here. Because when you're the last, it just reminds you, you're not first. Which is really tough for us Western people. I hate finishing last. I hate the lastness in a sense of the gospel. I mean, you know, I don't want to finish last. I want to win, right? I want, I want to sing the song on Sunday morning. All I do is win, right? Uh, we should do that one Sunday maybe. I mean, how many of you get trophies for finishing last? You don't, right? I mean, we're Americans, right? I mean, we get trophies for finishing first. Or actually, we get trophies just for participating now, right? All right. All right. It's a different sermon. We'll get to that. But if you're feeling, you're feeling this morning like you're the last to know why you're going through it, why it's so hard, why the thing you're believing for is taking so long to break through, why the thing you're carrying this morning is so heavy. Listen, listen, listen. As a pastor, I'm so sorry. So I wish, I wish I could make it all better and all right for you right now. I wish it weren't so heavy, and yet, and yet, when I look at God's word and his nature and his character and his promises, oh, I've got hope for you. I've got hope for me. And you should have hope for me as well and hope for yourself. Because in every case, every case where his children suffered, God was there bringing glory into the world by making that person into something amazing. Or as Jesus put it, many who are last shall be what? First, yeah. And this, this, this whole thought, this is beginning to dawn on Job here, which is why he moves from asking why to asking what. And let me suggest to you that you should do the same. But that's not all that Job sees here. He also sees that God is not just making us last in a sense, but second, he's making us lasting. Making us lasting, what does this mean? Well, let's look at verses seven through nine. It says, at least there is hope, Job says, for a tree, if it's cut down, it'll sprout again. New shoots won't fail. Roots may grow old in the ground. Its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it'll bud and put forth shoots like a plant. All right. What's Job doing or seeing here? Well, Job, as you can see, he's actually using a common, very common, agricultural and biblical metaphor to process his pain, which is this. He's saying and showing that suffering works in our lives like pruning works with plants right you'll notice he says when a tree is cut down it can actually do what it can grow back and and that thought right there that is one of the great mm, paradoxes right of the agricultural world that cutting something 
that producing stress in something can bring out the best in that plant in the long run, but just leaving a plant, a life to its own, allowing it to have a painless, stress-free existence can actually bring about sickness, decay, and rot in that plant's inner life. And sometimes, therefore, the deepest stress can bring about the most abundant life. If you were ever forced, like I was, to, to read, or you maybe just chose to read the great Christian Russian writer, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, you may know that his books like Crime and Punishment or The Brothers Karamazov, they actually deal quite a bit with faith, with suffering, with redemption. And that's no coincidence, because as a young man, Dostoevsky was arrested and imprisoned for protesting against his government. He was protesting their tyrannical and greedy policies and was arrested for it. And after an eight-month sentence in which he only read the Bible every day, his sentence was finally announced. He was to be executed by a firing squad. And so he and 23 other young men from the prison were lined up, blindfolded, Taken before the firing squad. I mean, can you imagine? The guns were lifted. The order came to shoot. And then at the last second, one of the prison wardens rode up and announced a reprieve. Now, the whole thing was actually a a sham. It was a farce. It was staged to mess with the prisoners' minds, to break them down. But that moment, hanging between life and death, uh, feeling cut down, it changed Dostoevsky's life. He rediscovered his faith in God. Uh, He he developed a compassion for the poor and the suffering and the outcast that he held throughout his life. And he saw that through suffering, God could not only get a person's attention, but make him stronger in the long run. As a matter of fact, that single experience of living through the firing squad was so defining for him, he actually put it into one of his books, his book called The Idiot, being a metaphor actually for Jesus, a person who believes the best and loves at all times. And in The Idiot, one of his characters goes through the same firing squad experience, the same death sentence, the same staging, the same reprieve, and then Dostoevsky put into his character's mouth what he was thinking when it happened to him, and this is what he said. He said, as he stood before his executioners, he thought, what if I didn't have to die? I would turn every minute into an age. Nothing would be wasted. Every minute would be accounted for. And that's what he did. It launched him into his literary career. That moment, can you see a feeling cut down, the stress of facing his own mortality, and then living through it, it freed him from his past, And as he put it, he said, my suffering freed me from my own futilities, errors, laziness, incapacity to live. He said, life is a gift. Now, how did he come to see that? Through pruning, through cutting in his own life. But let's ask, why? Why does pruning work like that? What was going going on? underneath his pain or in the same way what's going on underneath whatever you're going through today the author wayne jacobson's a christian author whose father uh, was a vineyard owner in southern california in middle california and wayne grew up learning about how vineyards work how growing grapes work and he wrote a book about the spiritual parallels between growing grapes and how god grows us the book's called in season it's a good book 
He says the botanical term that comes closest to describing how God works in our lives is the term he calls grafting. Grafting, and here's how he put it. It's amazing. He says grafting is a nearly miraculous process in which one new plant is made out of two. There are various methods for doing this, but all involve a branch cut from one vine and inserted into a cut on another vine. The two are then bound together with an adhesive compound or tape. As the wound heals, the two plants become one, and the new branch draws sap from the roots of the established vine. Notice that grafting demands a wound in both parties. Jesus, as our vine, was cut open on the cross to make room for us. For us to be grafted into him, we must also be wounded so that we will fit into the place prepared. Unless we are cut away from our roots in the past, we cannot be placed in him. Yeah, that's good stuff, huh? So what does it take to get strength, sap, vitality? It takes what? Being wounded or cut in some way. If the cutting never comes, the strength never does either. And I remember uh, being in college, a college freshman, when I became a Christian, I was born again, experienced Jesus, I was changed by him, and then, all of a sudden, my life started falling apart. Yeah. Started sitting the bench on my baseball team, my girlfriend and I broke up, started struggling in some of my classes. Now, those may seem like small potatoes to you, but they were huge potatoes for me at the time, right? And your potatoes are your big potatoes, so don't rain on my potato parade here. All right. Now, and I graduated and I went into campus ministry. I struggled financially. Uh, the first person I ever led to Christ on my baseball team, he literally quit the next week and I never saw him again. Second person I led to Christ then took one of the leaders in our campus ministry, took her out of the group, and they moved in together down the street, right? I'm sure a future ministry wasn't quite apparent for me. Again, struggling financially, my pastor boss constantly publicly berated me for what he perceived to be my overall incompetence in ministry and my lack of a future there. I was single for far longer than I wanted while I waited for God to bring the right person into my life. I felt like I was bleeding all over the place. And I was, I was, because all my sick and rotting roots, performance, achievement, having to have a relationship to make me somebody, all those things needed to be snipped and cut and rerooted into something that can make me far, far stronger in the long run. And that's why Paul writes, he writes these light (laughs) and momentary afflictions are achieving for us. He says, a glory that makes them all worth it in the long run. He says, my sufferings, hear this, are making me glorious. That's the Bible's word for weight. He says, my sufferings are making me lasting, he says. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. But there's one more thing here God does to bring hope into our lives. And it's not only a high point of the book of Job and Job's life. It's a high point of the whole Bible. And it's this, that in our suffering, God doesn't just make us last, doesn't just make us lasting. He makes us everlasting. 
as much as Job is saying here, that God can make us lasting, stronger through suffering, he's actually using the metaphor in a negative light here, as you may have picked up on, because he realizes that the idea here has got a limit. Because look at verse 10. Job says, a tree can bud again if it's cut down, but if a person doesn't just suffer, but his suffering kills him, ends his life. Then look at this. He says, but a man dies, man dies, and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. See, he's saying, unlike a plant, when a human being's life is cut off, he's saying, it's over, it's the end. For a tree, there is hope, but for people, there's not. See, Job, Job's despairing here. He's wavering a bit. He's faltering. He's saying, God, you've made me last. I know you're supposed to be making me lasting, but I'm still thinking, God, I need something to catch my falling heart. And then, then, in an astonishing moment, Job's mind leaps and it goes to another place altogether. And he says next, immediately, he says, but if only you would hide me in the grave, conceal me to your anger's past. If only you'd set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I'll wait for my renewal to come. Now, what in the world is this? I mean, almost every secular commentator, when you read them, uh, they've got no idea what to do with this. They just skip it over, don't even try to offer commentary. But almost every Christian commentary perceives what Job is talking about here. And maybe you're beginning to perceive it yourself. What's he saying? Oh, he's saying, God, after I die, after my suffering kills me, after I go into the grave, I'm going to wait for you, he says, until my hard service, that means prison labor. He's saying, I'm going to wait in the grave for you until my debt is paid. And God, if only you would remember me, that means to reattach, to put back together. God, if you would renew me, oh God, if I knew that was going to happen, God, I would wait for you forever. And then you can see this thought growing in him. He breaks through to another level. And he doesn't just say, if it could happen. He says, I believe it will happen. Look at this. He said, you will call and I will answer you. That's what it says, verse 15. You will call and I will answer you. It's incredible. He's saying, God, I believe it will happen one day. God, though I'm in the grave, you'll call. And I will come to you. I know I will. Just call me God. I'll get up and come. Now, where in the world is he getting this? I mean, not only was there nothing else going on in the world at this time like this, there's nothing else in the Bible like this. It's unprecedented. How can he believe it's going to happen? What could bring a dead man back to life? And the answer is love. Love. It's right here in one of the most moving verses in the Bible. He says this can happen because he says, you will long for the creature your hands have made. Oh, Job's saying, God, even after all I've been through, even after all my pain, I know, I believe you're a God of infinite love. You love me so much, you're gonna call for me the creature your hands have fashioned. You won't forget me. And that longing for me is so powerful. It can even cause me to get up out of the grave. I'll come to you. We'll be together forever. Oh, Job's saying, God, your love is so powerful. It could even resurrect me. Resurrect me. And if this is true, this is greater than anything else you've heard today. Because it's one thing to say, 
God's making you lasting. It's another thing to say he's making you everlasting. It's one thing to say God can console me one day. It's another thing altogether to say God can resurrect me one day. See what Job's describing here. It's different than just paradise. Listen, lots of religions, faith systems, they'll offer you paradise or reincarnation as a consolation prize for the life you wanted but couldn't ever have. Right, for all your misery. And that's nice. They'll say you'll have pleasure and comfort one day because you, you couldn't get it then. But that's not what Job's talking about here. That's not what the Bible means at all when it talks about resurrection. Because the Bible doesn't just offer you consolation for pain. It offers, hear this, a reconstruction. A reconstruction of the material, physical world back to the way things ought to have been all along. Resurrection means, in other words, as we say here often... All the sad things come untrue. This past week, actually, uh, I had a dream. One of my sons died. Yeah. It was awful. He contracted this terrible illness, and I felt his life go out of his body in the hospital room. Then he was gone. And suddenly, I woke up. Now, do you know what I felt at that moment? I felt joy. I smiled in the middle of the night. Why? Here's why. Because having lost him in the past in a nightmare made waking up to having him in reality that much greater. See, I was more grateful for him after the nightmare, having had the nightmare, than I was when I went to bed. The darkness of a nightmare made having him now even greater. What had happened? Oh, here's what. Everything that had happened that was sad had come untrue. It had come untrue. And that's what resurrection is, church. Not a consolation, but a restoration, a bringing back of everything to the way it ought to have been all along. And this is an incredible hope for you now, no matter what you're going through. This is unbelievably powerful, and it's been used as a resource in history for the hurting heart in so many cases. And here's one example. 1947, African-American scholar and pastor Howard Thurman, you may know the name, he gave a lecture at Harvard University on the meaning of what he called the Negro spiritual song. And in the lecture, he responded to a criticism of the songs that said they were too otherworldly, too much about the future, because the songs are filled with references to joy uh, and the chariots coming low, robes, heaven, judgment day, to carry the slaves away from their pain. And the charge against the songs was that they made the slave, slave singers too docile to resign to their condition. But Thurman said this. He said, the facts make clear that singing these songs did serve to deepen the capacity for endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. But the cynical, skeptical folk, they pushed back and they said, well, those songs are nice, uh, but you can't take them literally. You can't take them literally. All that stuff about the symbols, about heaven, hell, judgment day, God's wrath, rescue, all those things are, uh, they're just nice symbols. You can't take them literally. But Thurman responded and said, if you can't take them literally, there's no hope at all. He said, quote, in the end, for such a secular view, the present moment is all there is. Man becomes a prisoner in a tight world of momentary events. No more and no less. 
For these slave singers, such a view was completely unsatisfactory. And it was therefore thoroughly and decisively rejected. And this, I love this, is the miracle of their achievement, causing them to take their place alongside the great creative religious thinkers of the human race. They made a worthless life, a life of chattel poverty, worth living. He's saying a belief in the literal resurrection gave them a hope that could not be extinguished despite their suffering. And that's exactly what Job is saying here. He's saying, and they believe that one day, even if they didn't get justice in this life, which they didn't, even if the political process failed them, which it did, even if, like Job, they got no answers, that the resurrection was powerful enough to undo all of it in one day and make a horrible life worth living right now. And do you know what? One day, one day, what Job could only imagine actually happened. Because one day, many years later, Jesus Christ stood at the tomb of a man named Lazarus. A man Jesus' own hands had made. But Lazarus had suffered and died. And now Jesus stood at the tomb. And if you know the story, the background, the context, you know that the tension, the boiling point between Jesus and the Pharisees was at a powder keg level, one more match, and the whole thing would explode. And Jesus knew as he stood at Lazarus's tomb, if he raised Lazarus, the Pharisees were going to have to kill him. In other words, he knew if he raised Lazarus, he'd have to put himself in the ground. But he did it. He called to the one he longed for, he loved, and Lazarus was brought back to life. Why? Oh, not because Jesus believed in the resurrection, but because Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life, and the man Lazarus got up, and he got the foretaste of what every child of God is going to have one day. How? Oh, it's because of what Jesus did. He did on the cross. He did, can you see, our hard service, our hard labor. He paid the debt that we owed to God. On the cross, oh, Jesus Christ put our sins in a bag and paid for it with his life. Oh, can you see, though, somebody help me. His father longed for him, right? Couldn't leave him dead. Longed for him, called to him. And Jesus, on that Sunday, he got up. Our resurrection, our life, he walked out of the tomb. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he sends now his Holy Spirit into the world, into me and you, to begin to make all the sad things come untrue. And when the Apostle Paul saw this, oh, he it's why he taunted death. He says, church, I tell you a mystery. One day we'll all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. He said, then what will come true, what has been said, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? He's taunting it. He's saying they don't exist. The resurrection of Jesus Christ takes the sting out of it. It takes all the sadness out of it. And that's why you can sing the words of the old hymn. I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep, but now my griefs to sing. Oh, let me tell you, you may be weeping now. One day this is saying, you'll Sing your griefs. I promise you that. Your griefs will be turned into a song. Because of the resurrection, Job saw it. Lazarus experienced it. Because Jesus did it. It's yours in the gospel today.